everyone. So welcome to episode 17 of Tetarik with Walid. And uh, it is, you know, I always say this such that I, it almost becomes meaningless, but I genuinely mean it every single time that we have a very special guest today. Uh, so far, I would say all my guests have been special. Uh, but today is the first time I'm doing with a non-Singaporean politician. And I know a lot of you have uh, sent me questions on Singapore politics, but I will not be asking anything about Singapore politics. I don't think I should be asking a, a non-Singaporean politician about Singapore politics, right? So I think uh, that shouldn't be the topic, that shouldn't be the way. So I will be discussing uh, YB Said Sadiq's future in politics and his conception uh, of what politics in Malaysia should be, or what he imagines it to be. Uh, and I will be discussing Malaysian politics exclusively. So for the Singaporeans here, uh, YB basically refers, uh, uh, means Yang Berhormat or the Honourable One or the Respected One. Uh, basically, it's part of the Westminster tradition to call your MPs, right? Uh, the right honourable gentleman or uh, the... Uh, so that's what they do in, in Britain. So in Malaysia, they call them uh, YB, Yang Berhormat. So I'm waiting for uh, YB to come on uh, and I will accept uh, his uh, request soon. Hopefully, hopefully he didn't fall asleep or anything. Uh, let me just WhatsApp him. Alright, so if you have any questions, yes, Farah, I'm excited to be here as well. If you have any questions, please uh, feel free to type them in the chat and hopefully we can go through some. Uh, and we'll see uh, how many we can go through, if we can go through uh, anything at all. So, so YB is already here. Hello, YB, how are you? Very good. Thank you. Thank you very okay. much for having me. No, thank you for doing this. I know you get such invitations all the time, so I'm very honoured uh, that you are spending this time with me. And maybe just a little bit about YB. I mean, he's the probably the most popular politician in Southeast Asia. He needs no introduction, but just out of courtesy, he was the former Minister of uh, Youth and Sports uh, in Malaysia, the youngest minister in the world, I believe. YB. Uh, uh, <laughs> I will. I will not boast. I will not boast about myself. <laughs> okay, let can, me boast for you. So the up. youngest yeah. minister in the world, and he he has also been described as the uh, future uh, prime minister of Malaysia uh, by some people. Uh, although people have said that about Datuk Seri Anwar Ibrahim for forty years, so I don't want to jinx it for you. <laughs> one, so, one thing. One thing I've learned about. One thing I've learned about Malaysian politics is that. Uh, the more you aspire to climb up the ladders of power, the more you'll be turned down. So right. it's better to leave it unexpected because I notice a lot of those who will end up becoming prime ministers are those who never planned it. So yeah. right, right, okay, okay. I think that's that's really wise, wise words of wise, uh, wise words. And uh, I, you know, I was never on the side Sadiq bandwagon before this. Uh, I, I, I mean, maybe it's partly because of my ignorance. But after our meeting uh, last week, that was the first time I, I really. I really uh, enjoyed it, and I really, I really believe you could be. I mean, or maybe you should be. I mean, we, I, I, mean, I don't know. That's for Malaysians to decide, right? But although I did sure. notice one fundamental character flaw in our during our lunch meeting, and that was you ordered 
uh, teh ice kurang manis and I thought my god Ayo. can I really <laughs> can I really trust a person who drinks teh kurang manis <laughs> I think if you may have realized even though it was kurang manis it's still like really manis <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I don't know whether this is a Singaporean thing or not but I always like in 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 the mama in Malaysia like all all the restaurant mama which I go to like I I won't order kurang manis But Singapore, if when I don't order kurang manis, I think the one which I ordered at um oh god, what's the name of that place? Uh, the, was the that? popular the popular murtabak. Oh, zam zam uh, zam zam. Yeah, yeah. It was so sweet. So I'm like, what? And Dala, okay, I I I am a sweet tooth. However, however, a disclaimer is, my family has a legacy of diabetes. Okay, so okay. the last thing which I want. <laughs> to also inherit that unfortunate tragedy. So, right, yeah, I right. mean, uh... <laughs> okay, thank you, YB. But other than that, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed that session, and hopefully, today's session will be similarly illuminating as well. So, my first question for you is: What what next for Muda? Right, we want to look ahead to the next election, and and not just the next election, right? Next generation as well. So, what next for yeah. Muda? And how far are you willing to go in terms of alliance building for for yeah. Muda? I think in terms of alliance building, uh, it must be based on values. Uh, Muda stands for multiracialism. We see diversity as an asset and not a liability. We want to ensure that there are enough youth representation in all layers of decision making and leadership. We want to ensure that Malaysia moves forward down the path of policy making or policy based platform instead of looking at race and religion per se. And we want to ensure that reform that we reform democratic institutions so that in the end whoever is in power will never be able to centralize power, and that democracy will trump. So I think these are just very basic tenets of what Muda stands for. Um, and in terms of alliance building, we will go down that path, right? Um, so in the next uh, few weeks, there will be some very exciting announcements which we'll make. Um, but what is clear is that we we are in opposition block. We want to work with all opposition parties, and uh, we want to prepare ourselves for next election. Um, quite tragically, as we discussed the last time, Muda has not gotten party registration. This has been what month number six or number seven. Uh, I mean, if really Muda is so weak and incapable and filled with inexperienced people, the government shouldn't be afraid of us and should just give us registration. And allow us to fight it out during elections. But the fact that up until today, uh, Muda has not been registered is a great indicator of fear and desperation of those in power to cling on to power. Um, and I think just about three three weeks, sorry, about a month ago, we got the final response from the Registrar of Society, saying that until now uh, we have not gotten registration because we haven't gotten security clearance, which I think is quite odd. I mean. Why are you afraid of a bunch of uh, young idealists uh, who really want to disrupt Malaysian politics? We're not here to preach the politics of vengeance and vendetta. In reality, we want to go down the path of multiracialism, moderation, policy-based politics, constructive-based politics, because I believe uh, this is how we can take Malaysia forward. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. So, if Muda is not registered, then what happens? Um, so we are going to work with. Opposition parties. So, in terms of what flag we'll use, uh, your coalition partners, as I mentioned, it must not be a coalition of convenience. It must be based on values. So, uh, we will decide then. Right. Okay. Thank you. So, there were there was a lot in what what you said. Uh, so, I want to get to the 
the idea that you said it should be based on policies and uh, multiracialism. And I think from from what I know of you, from our conversations, I think it's safe to say that you are a multiracial person at heart, right? Uh, but that is not how power is structured at the moment in Malaysia, yeah. right? So we'll get to that. But uh, in terms of the alliance, right, uh, you said it cannot be a marriage of convenience. Uh, would you say Pakatan Harapan was precisely that and that's why it was destined to fail from the start? To be honest, at the beginning, it wasn't based on convenience alone. Uh, the fact that we agreed to a certain set of reforms, that the federal constitution was the pivot which tied us all together. And when we were in government, uh, we worked well with one another. But there were leadership disputes uh, at the top in particular. And, um, but in terms of guiding principles, I think we were able to move forward together before election, after election. Um, but I think what must be clear is that there must be clarity in leadership. There must be clarity in policies as well. Um, and that when we are part of government, we need to ensure that we carry it out. So when we talk about democratic reforms uh, and institutional reforms, we need to ensure that it is done, that it must be political will from all parties and not just upon one person or group of people. Um, so yeah, I think moving forward, we have learned a lot and it's time for us to, to, to learn from our mistakes. Okay, so is there a preferred... <clears throat> Uh, prime ministerial candidate, or are there are there red lines for you in in the coalition building? One thing which I've learned again in Malaysian politics: never just rely on a personality or on personalities per se. That's why I keep on stressing on value-based politics. Right? Um, it's still too early uh, to tell, uh, but what's most important is for opposition coalition to come together, to be united, embrace multiracialism, diversity, moderation, come up with a clear. Uh, and well-planned policy platform for Malaysian public to judge, um, and then we can discuss uh, uh, leadership. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. So, in this future conception of Malaysia, where does race come in? In your your future conception? I mean, it's perfectly fine. Race and religion will always have a place. However, I think what ties and binds us all together is that we are all Malaysian. So we are, in the end, Malaysian first. Right, um, and that while we may not be born into the same religion or share the same skin color, but uh, but we share a lot more commonalities with one another. Right, in the end, we all want to ensure that um, that poverty is eradicated. We want to ensure that Malaysia grows prosperously uh, uh, with with great prosperity. That wealth is shared equitably, um, and that you know there's great education quality, good quality of living. I mean, these are all things which we all share in common. Um, so I think these are the things which bind us together, which uh, moves beyond factors of race and religion. Right. So does that mean that, I mean, this is probably the, the biggest, uh, most sensitive issue, right? What happens to race-based policies or race-based affirmative action uh, in Malaysia? Yeah. Eventually, in the long run, maybe not in the next five years, or, but eventually. I think that's why I keep on stressing on looking at policy-based reforms. I mean, if you look at specific race-based uh, race policies, we need to ask if it has been effective. When Tun Abdul Raza instituted the national economic policy, it was well-intentioned. It was to eradicate poverty, not just among the Malay community, but among all communities. And poverty was identified as the biggest threat and enemy. And obviously then, the vast majority of those who lived under poverty were the Malays. However, 
that in no way meant that there were no Chinese, no Indians who were also under poverty. So the, right. the, the purpose was to ensure that it was poverty eradication regardless of race and religion. The question then is, after years of implementation, what else can we do to tweak and improve it? The fact that one of the largest beneficiaries, which should have been Bumiputra Sabahans, right, those in Sabah, uh, should have been brought out of poverty. However, today, still a quarter of Bumiputra Sabahans still live below poverty line is a great indicator that there's a policy failure. So instead of only zooming in on an issue of race and religion, look at specific policy-based outcomes, right? Where can we reform? How do we move forward? And obviously, it must be done with the agreement of fellow Malaysians. Therefore, we need to hit the ground. We need to convince them that this will be much better for them, right? So I'm pretty sure if you ask a, a, a middle-class Chinese family that it is justified for us to give a scholarship and a preferential scholarship to a Malay family, to that kid who has been living un under the poverty line, while he may not have the same academic qualifications, however, has been placed under immense pressure, needing to do two or three work, needing to sustain the family, going to a substandard school. I think definitely, even if you ask that Chinese family, it, there will be a great acceptance to help that underprivileged kid. However, if you ask that Chinese family to give a preferential scholarship to a T20 Malay family, obviously that middle-class Chinese family will be angry. Vice versa, you ask a Malay family whether there's a need to help the underprivileged fam, uh, Chinese kid, the person will say yes. So in the end, again, it shows there's common traits, commonalities in wanting to help one another, but they are obviously red lines, right? I mean, the point in which the person is doing exceptionally well comes from a well of family, but still gets specific support. That's where there is a great problem. So in the end, I think a policy-based reform is much better. It is important for us to revise existing policies, but don't look at it from a racial lens only. Instead, look at what policy reforms will generate better outcomes to deal with poverty, to deal with middle income trap, to release the true potential of Malaysia. Right. So, I mean, that, I think that was an excellent analysis. So, it does seem to me you, you are talking about class-based affirmative action? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, it's uh, uh, class-based, needs-based. So, merit is very important. Meritocracy is very important to unleash the true potential of a country. However... When you look at pure meritocracy, it also looks at where the person started, right? You can't expect, for example, uh, a person uh, who's born to a very poor, who's born in a very poor family, will not have access to additional tuition, additional education grants, will have to sustain the family doing two or three jobs, but then expect the person to perform academically the same as someone who's born in a rich family can have access to many different tuition schemes. Um, and, and, and doesn't need to do work, focus, can, can focus on these studies. So definitely, merit also looks at the starting point. So it's not necessarily equalizing opportunities, mm. uh, or sorry, equal, equalizing Outcome. outcomes, but it's equalizing opportunities, the base point. So I think right. that should be the priority. Right, okay. So and I, I think I completely agree with you. I don't think equality of outcome is as desirable as a lot of people think, but equality of, of opportunity is something that eminently desirable and something that we all should should strive uh, for and thank you for that i think that was that was pretty clear okay last just a final question on this particular point do you think there is a political appetite for that at the moment moving away from race-based to class-based affirmative action i think there is an appetite and there's a great appetite that's why if you look um 
issues which affect a lot of Malaysians, you know, it's not just targeted. You, you ask the Chinese youth, the Malay youth, the Indian youth, the Iban Kadazan youth, you ask all of them, they get particularly frustrated when they see that there's great income inequality, um, um, not just among races, but intra, inter-races and intra-races, mm. you know. And in the end, they look at a lot more on a class basis. They see today during times of COVID, a group of billionaires amassing their wealth. However, uh, it comes at a time where hundreds and thousands of people are out of a job and it is expected that we may reach the million mark of unemployment. Uh, if this rate continues. And they see this again, where people are clinging on, if not multiplying their wealth during times of crisis. They see, for an example, that, that there are calls for middle class to be taxed even more, and at a time in which a person who plays stocks doesn't get taxed at all for the mm. profits which he made. So imagine you play stocks, you, you make hundreds of thousands of ringgit a day, but there's no tax whatsoever because government doesn't tax on capital gains. If you're born into a rich family, you inherit billions of ringgit, absolutely no tax whatsoever. However, if you come from a, from, from a middle-class family, there are many different kinds of taxes. And to some extent, it seems to be very regressive. So I'm not obviously advocating for us to punish the rich, eat, eat the rich. No, it's not, right? Obviously, Malaysia must be a country which is open, uh, which is open to investors. We need to ensure and celebrate people who can multiply their wealth. However we also must acknowledge that there must be equitable growth and equitable distribution of wealth. It becomes unjust when a specific handful of people can profit from a very hospitable business environment, you know, where we have almost cheap labor. Uh, however, where people get richer and richer, the middle class gets stuck and the poorer gets even poorer. That's where a true problem comes. I'm very sure that with a fair taxation framework, not one which penalizes the rich only, but a fair taxation framework, I think that will be good for all Malaysians. And I don't think that will affect business confidence in Malaysia. Right. Okay. So do you think, uh, you talked about this perception of unfairness, right? Do you think younger people in particular have a lower threshold for this? Whereas older people tended, or, or am I exaggerating the generational divide, you think? Um, I believe this affects all Malaysians to be honest. Um, so when I talk about windfall tax uh, recently in parliament, I propose for there to be a windfall tax. Just recently, many uh, chief economists, World Bank, IMF have proposed the same thing for governments to do. The UK has done a wealth tax temporarily to finance their additional uh, budget to service those who are poor, un unemployed, uh, their furlough scheme. And in Malaysia, I did propose it because a lot, a lot of the glove companies made billions in profits uh, during times of epidemic. And not to say that we want to drive them out. We should allow them to keep the profits. However, partially tax them. Not to say take away all the profits which they made. No. But there should be a windfall tax. Similarly, like how we tax the palm oil industry. And until today, we still do. You know, why, why, why is there any difference here? Um, because in the end, we want to ensure that the government coffers will be better but not for, to finance, again, uh, a lot of minister's salaries or bonuses, no, but to return it back to those who genuinely need it. In, in Singapore, uh, I think you know that uh, during times of COVID, 75% of a person's salary is covered by government to ensure that businesses can survive and that people do not get unemployed during times of an epidemic. I think in Malaysia, we need to continue this scheme 
we should actually improve it, the, the, the um, uh, income supplement scheme to ensure that employers can continue to hire and will not be forced to let them off. So in the end, I think when you tie this in together, you, you look, those who run SMEs and businesses, a lot of those are above 40, right? So there's no generational gap. They want this. They want to ensure that their business interests, that their employees' interests will be taken care of. And at the same time, young people, young graduates who are entering the job sector wants a dignified wage, wants a dignified job to ensure that in the end, they can create a family and live the Malaysian dream like their fathers, uh, like their fathers and mothers. Okay, thank you, YB. By the way, for the audience, I have not given YB a list of questions. This is just, we are just making it up as we go along and his answer, in, his answering impromptu. So, so thank you for that. That's really, uh, really illuminating. So I want to go back to the idea of the Pakatan Harapan Coalition, right? Uh, you mentioned that it wasn't uh, just about a marriage of convenience. But do you think the lack of an ideological glue between the different parties, you had DAP, a secular party, you had Bersatu, a Malay-based party, you had PKR, uh, and you had Amana as well, a moderate Islamist party, yeah. uh, if I could call it that. Uh, so don't you think they were all... And they were also they also comprise personalities which let's face it don't really like each other as well. So, do you think the lack of an ideological glue, in addition to the personality personality clashes, that basically uh, was the downfall of uh, Pakatan Harapan? It's not just mm -hmm. about looking at the past, but looking at the past to understand the future, and that is something yeah. that you should avoid in the future. If if Malay Malaysian politics is full of ironies, if you look at building a coalition based on values, um, you'd never expect for MCA and MIC to live together with AMNO. I mean, right. they are, right. are race-based and diametrically opposed to one another because they only represent the interests of their community. However, that coalition lasted more than 60 years, right? Um, so I think a Big Ten approach, mm. which at its core is driven by multiracialism, is important. Right, which is driven by our federal constitution, which I believe balances the interests of all races and religions. So I think the point in which federal constitution becomes the pivot, we embrace and celebrate multiracialism instead of just tolerating it and looking on a policy-based platform on reforms that we want to ensure that there's no longer centralization of power, that whoever is in power will no longer, it's no longer a world where winner takes all. These are all basic concepts of reforms which can tie a big tent coalition together. However, I think often in Malaysia, uh, it's a personality clashes uh, which are more destructive than, uh, than a big tent approach. I mean, even if you look at Perikatan National today, in terms of values, they should be more right. aligned than Pakatan right, Harapan. Right, Yet, right. they are more unstable than Pakatan Harapan. They are the so-called Malay Muslim government. Bersatu and Amno are almost like mirrors of one another. But yet, they fight more than when under Pakatan Harapan, right. despite being aligned together. Because why? Because they are competing on the same base. They want to kill one another. They are jumping from one party to another. So despite being aligned in values, however, uh, the personality clashes overwhelm everything else. Right? Amno wants to be the big dog. Masatu wants to be the big dog. Everyone wants to be the big dog. In the end, Malaysia uh, gets embroiled in, 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 in a politics of uncertainty. So that's why I think in the end, it's not, you need to get the right values, the right personalities, but it should not be driven by personalities alone. There should be a team of leaders together to bind us together from one generation to another. Um, can this be done in opposition coalition? Maybe. Will it be hard? 
obviously, but I think we need to keep on pushing forward the boundaries of Malaysian politics to ensure that we win back the hearts and minds of the Malaysian voters. That sounds like some heavy lifting there. So how long, <laughs> how long, how long are you in this for? For the rest of your life? Uh, no, I don't think any politician should aspire to be a politician <laughs> for the rest of his and her life. Um, it's never easy, to be honest. Um, and 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 if you if you think that, you know that that you are indispensable, then you are wrong. No right. politician, no policymaker is indispensable. Our time will come. Learn right. to move forward. Never cling on to power because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much. And you've mentioned democratic-based reforms, policy-based reforms a few, a few times. So uh, just tangibly, right? If let's say you were, you were in charge of Malaysia, what, what would be the tangible reforms that you think are, can be done quite easily uh, and are necessary for Malaysia to move forward democratically? Sure. Um, this will be a long lecture if I'm given <laughs> a lot of time, but I'll try, I'll try my best to summarize the best way possible because sure. I don't want to just talk sure. about fluff without policies. Sure. So, um, first thing first, I think we cannot keep on giving the excuse, ah, we can only reform democratic institutions if we have two-thirds majority. I didn't have two-thirds majority when I was a Minister of Youth and Sports, yet I got through a bipartisan constitutional amendment to reduce voting age from 21 to 18 years so old. It can be done, we just have to have the political will and the iron in us to push it through. So what, what political reforms will I carry through? A few. One is, I believe very strongly that Malaysia needs a political funding act, PFA. Because at the moment, there's absolutely no regulations whatsoever on political funding. So, sir, if you are in Singapore, you are a billionaire, you want to finance Malaysia's election, from top to bottom, you can. You can finance government, opposition, whoever wins will serve your interest. You can, because that's perfectly legal. And that's unbelievably scary, right? The mm -hmm. fact that the former Prime Minister Najib Razak could openly say that in his defence that he got 2.6 billion from a Saudi king and proudly says that as a defence is very troubling. So political funding reform is very important because we ensure that you no longer serve the interests of cronies or a select handful of billionaires. Obviously, money is important in Malaysian politics. However, we need to regulate it. We need to ensure that it is transparent, that the public knows and the public can hold political parties accountable. That's one. Second, we need to decentralize the, the, the mentality of winner takes all. Therefore, the Prime Minister should no longer have a multi-billion dollar discretionary fund or slush fund which can be used to buy over MPs. We need to ensure that we ban party hopping or even if party hopping is there, there is a recall election. Therefore, allow voters to decide if a member of parliament jumps, immediately there's a snap election in that constituency. So if it's done out of conscience of, uh, to, to, to combat corruption, then voters will accept. But if it's for money, it's for power, voters will reject. We need to restore back allocations towards opposition members, right? So we shouldn't have a mentality where uh, if you're a government MP, you get this amount of money, opposition MP, you get zero. Mm. That has to stop. We need to ensure that opposition states are treated with respect. I remember when I was part of government, I argued and finally was accepted for opposition states to receive direct grants no longer going through a parallel body which is controlled by federal government. Why? Because the state governments are elected by the people and we must work the state governments, not a parallel body under the state government. So I think, I mean, there are many things. Making sure that the right. Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission appointments of MACC, the police, all are done through an independent body and no longer 
the veto of the Prime Minister. It must be tabled in Parliament. The Parliament must be an independent institution. Why do I stress on all these basic institutional or democratic reforms? Because I believe through these democratic reforms, we will unleash the true potential of Malaysia. When you get the right appointments in to government-linked companies, we can perform as good, or if not better, than Temasek. But if we keep on appointing just a handful of our friends who have no interest at all about governing these GLCs, how do you expect for these GLCs to move forward and to grow, right? So if you have a winner-take-all mentality and a lack of transparency and accountability, how are you going to manage the economy well? How are you going to ensure that you tackle corruption and abuse of power, which is endemic? So I always stress about the important and fundamental democratic reforms because I believe that will open up many rooms of opportunities for then economic reforms, racial reforms, education reforms, which are very sensitive, but it will be made easier when democracy is stronger, when there's no longer one person who can manipulate race and religion for their political interests, I think that's where we get a better field. Obviously, after doing all of that comes a lot of the economic reforms, right? We need a right. fair taxation model. We need to ensure that there's equitable distribution of wealth. We need education reforms, which is based on merit and policy. There are a lot of things which will never stop, which will lead me to, to lecture. Sure. But in a way, there are a lot of good things which we can do and which we should do. And when I was part of government, even though I was in the smallest ministry, which is the youth and sports ministry, with the smallest budget, I was able to get in three constitutional amendments, two important parliamentary legislative reforms uh, through in, uh, two, uh, in less than a two-year timeline. I believe if the whole of government focused on this, we could have done a lot more. Right. Thank you, Ibi. I think I was nodding in agreement uh, all the while until you said uh, you wanted to do better than Singapore. Let's not get into a Singapore-Malaysia spat right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think especially the party-hopping law, I think that's, that's super important to me because it seems like there was, for me at least, from an observer's perspective and from a non-Malaysian's perspective, the change in government because of party hopping, that seems to be a betrayal of yeah. the people's trust. Yeah, see. that that seems to be something that can be done easily, right? If people wanted to. I mean, you know, the education reforms, yeah, that's going to take time. But the stuff that you mentioned about the political reforms can be done tomorrow if people wanted yeah. to. Right? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, so what are the lessons that you have learned from the failure of Pakatan Harapan? Uh, in building your next coalition, right? What specifically will you avoid? Because you mentioned a lot about uh, the uh, personality politics and avoiding that. Uh, but don't you think at the moment, Muda is also about YB Said Sadiq? And basically, how are you going to prevent uh, Muda and your future coalition from falling into the same trap that other coalitions have, fall, uh, have fallen into? That's why I really want Muda to get immediately registered because once you see our lineup and we have already uh, disclosed a few leaders, these are people who have done a lot more than me and I'm humbled to be in their presence. People like Cheg Wayu, who's founded uh, schools for stateless children in Malaysia and who leads her own, her own NGO. These are people uh, who have won Forbes 30 in the 30, who are young corporates and who have done well in, 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 in the private sector. These are NGO leaders like Amir, who lets Waram and was, who's always in the front lines of almost every single street protest in Malaysia. So it's a very diverse bunch of people, right? From different races, religions. We have modern farmers. We have high, hundreds of people in Sabah running his business from being a very small business to what it, it is today. And these are people who have done a lot more than me. 
And I believe that if they're given a chance, they will do great things for Malaysia. And to link back to your question about moving away from personality-based politics, I think now it's important for us to disclose a team of leaders. It's no longer about one person. It's no longer about one man or one woman. It's a team of leaders. And I believe opposition coalition has that. We have by far the most number of young leaders to the point that among the young leaders, we have to compete with one another a lot. And I think that's good. That's healthy for competition. Similarly, just now, there's a Malaysian, always want to add Singapore. When I talk about <laughs> Singapore, we shouldn't be afraid to, 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 to talk about right. one another competitively, right? This right, is kind of right. healthy competition, which right. one. Good things which, which, which Singapore has done, we should learn. Why are we so afraid to right. learn, right? Uh, we should not feel inferior. We should not feel superior. In the end, where we can learn, we should learn. Similarly, in this context, it is a healthy competition in which when you disclose a team of leaders who will take over Malaysia, then there's greater confidence. Then there's no longer just one person shouldering the responsibility and, that when, and that when that one person fails, the whole system collapses. That period is done and it's over. Now we need a group of leaders, disruptors, to move and change Malaysia's political landscape once and for all. So these uh, opposition leaders, young opposition leaders, who, who are they specifically? Is in... Oh, there are a lot. I mean, in, in, in opposition, there are a lot. There are people like Nuriza, there are people like Rafizi, Hana Yo, Yobin, Stephen Sim, uh, Ulia, Kamuami. There are so many. Right. In opposition, right. among the M- even among MPs, I think we're like triple or quadruple the amount of young MPs in government coalition today. Right. Um, because we know that if we do not feel young people, we're not preparing for the future. We need to ensure that our coalition is a coalition of the future. Right. Okay. So why be... Uh, you mentioned uh, this, these young leaders, and I completely agree. I think a lot of them are extremely capable, right? Uh, but you also know that power consists nothing without demand, right? So why would the older people in the opposition step aside willingly for the younger people to? There's nothing about being young that, that by intrinsically makes them better, right? So why would these older people that a lot of people blame for whatever is going on in Malaysia, why would they step aside and hand over the reins to yoga? Because if they don't, voters will send a clear message. And that's the biggest worry. Uh, never underestimate the will of voters. And while I talk about young leaders, don't just look at young from an age perspective, right? I mean, in the end, the, these are people with, who, without the same personality baggage of wanting to fight one another, having issues here and there. We really want to focus on reforms, on policies, on multiracialism and moderation to take Malaysia forward. So these are the kind of ideals which we must uh, push to ensure that Malaysia moves forward. Um, and especially through the, uh, 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 through the constitutional amendment, which reduced the voting age from 21 to 18, which will increase uh, the youth voter base by millions, which will make young people the kingmakers in the next election. I think there's a great calling for there to be more young leaders in parliament instead of what's happening today where the majority of members of parliament are above 55 years old. And that's quite tragic. Uh, while in reality, there are a lot, the, Malaysia is a very young country. Um, so I think if they don't listen and they stay arrogant, Malaysian voters will speak on behalf of them. Right. Okay. Thank you. So there's a question from uh, Iggy Pereira. Uh, can I ask YB if he had considered joining the AP before starting Moodle? Because his letter to Lim Guan Ng had indicated that that would be the next logical step. Mm. 
you know, just to share, I've always had a good relationship with DAP, and that's why I don't have to be apologetic um, um, in wanting to work closely with them. Since uh, the days of Basatu, where I was a co-founder, um, I've been working very closely with them, um, trying to be the bridge among parties, even in government doing the same, and now even outside of government. And I remember, you know, that there, there were some ministries where there was a big clash between the minister and the deputy minister, which are from different parties. My deputy minister, Stephen Sim, is from DAP, and I've had the privilege of working with him because we don't see each other as superior, inferior. He's a partner in the ministry. He helped me a lot in the reforms which we're able to push through, whether, whether it's about the health reforms for, for our ex-athletes, uh, specific allocations or increase in, 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 in allocations for specific sports industries which he pushed for. So, I mean, I work really well with him. Just because he's from DAP in no way makes him uh, uh, inferior or suddenly, oh, you're DAP, you're China, suddenly I'm against you. No, right? I work really well with him. And with uh, a lot of the DAP leaders, well, look at Yobi Yin, right? I mean, one of, the young, the, one of the youngest ministers with me in cabinet, I work very closely with her. The point is, um, um, we were able to work closely with one another. And I believe moving forward, I will also be working very closely with them. Whether it's within the same party, coalition, I think what matters is that our values are aligned. And obviously, I think the AP has their own sets uh, of, of, of ideals which they like, uh, like to fight for. I'd like to create uh, another party which I believe will be a great disruptor in Malaysian politics and to also be a platform for many young people who have never had a place in Malaysian politics because they have to go through that very archaic traditional structure. So I will work with the AP, it's no problem. I've also met up with Kitsiang, uh, YB Kitsiang, uh, on, on, on this matter before. Obviously, he made his pitch. Um, but he knows that in the end, um, we have the same outcome, but different ways of reaching the outcome. Okay. So, I mean, you are open to working with most people, right? Are you open to working with AMNO as well, if they approach you? Oh, very different, right? So that's why I say it must be a coalition <laughs> of values. Right. I think if AMNO is under Tokmat Hassan, for example, it's very different, right? Okay. Um, I think you know the, the, the deputy president, decent guy, right. good guy. Um, however, now I'm in opposition coalition, right? Instead of keep on looking externally for different sources of strength, we should be look, looking at ourselves. How do we make ourselves better? How do we win the people's trust? What kind of policy platforms do people want to listen to? These are all important questions which we need to deal with. So instead of talking about, oh, what about working with this group and that group, even among opposition coalition now, there's still some splintering. So I think we have to get our act uh, together. And I think Pakatan Harapan's statement on embracing a big tent opposition politics is very good and progressive. Now it's time for us to work with one another closely in preparation for next election. Right. Okay. So I know you have had a very long day. So just final two questions, more feel-good questions. Okay. So what is one thing you would say to Malaysian youths now at, for this, uh, an, an appropriate piece of advice at this current point in time? Never, ever give up. That when the situation gets tough, we get tougher. Right. Um, Malaysia is a complex and complicated country. We are very diverse, multiracial, um, and, and to be honest, we are quite a young country and that we've been challenged and confronted many times pre-independence, during independence, through racial riots, 
through many economic crises, but yet we weathered all the storms which came our way and we came out stronger than ever. So while there is great political apathy that you may see that we are going through a, spree, a period of hopelessness, do not give up. The people who want you to give up are those who want to continue to cling on to power. Because in the end, they know that when good people leave, dirty people stay in power right. and they control the levels of power. Right. So if you see politics as toxic and divisive, then join. You don't necessarily have to be a frontliner in politics, but vote or talk to your parents or contribute in many other ways. The point is, we need clean people to cleanse politics and to reform Malaysia to, to unleash its true potential. So my plea to all of you is that do not give up. This is our country and we will fight for it together forever. And that while situation is tough today, rest assured if we stick together, we will be able to create history together. Thank you for that. That was really optimistic. I guess uh, what a lot of young people that I've spoken to, they do feel, for instance, after the Sher Sheraton move, right? they do feel discouraged because they had a lot of hope when they voted in uh, a new government. Uh, but then uh, due to politicking, the, the government uh, was upended. And I, I think uh, what you just said, I think it resonated uh, with me for sure. right? So let's end on a conciliatory note. I want to ask you, who is your favourite person from the current government and why? <laughs> current from government. the Perikatan National Government, yeah. Mm, I mean, oh, there is there are, any... <laughs> no, no. There are definitely a few which come right. to mind. It doesn't have to be in cabinet, right? Doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be. I mean, one person, this is personal bias. Huh? Personal bias. Uh, Nancy Shukri, YB Nancy Shukri, she's the Minister of Tourism. Um, put her portfolio aside, um, she was the person who gave me an opportunity to serve uh, as an intern um, and through my learnings uh, got me to where I'm at today and uh, you know she's a true civil servant to be honest uh, she doesn't mm. talk much about politics uh, and when I work with her she keeps on talking about policies policies and more policies and uh, she made me fall in love with Sarawak more than ever um, so she's amazing another leader is Azalina Osman eh? Azalina mm. Osman Despite not like meeting her many times, but mm. you know she's a veteran reformist on women right. issues, right? She successfully uh, bridged political divides to get through the, the 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 sexual harassment bill. However, now the government is really postponing it, which is quite tragic. Uh, the anti-grooming laws, uh, she pushed it forward. I think she's great. Um, and again, uh, not to mention that you know this is uh, uh, that this is me endorsing Perikatan National. There's obviously a soft side uh, uh, between me and Tan Sri Muhyiddin Yassin. Um, and again, this is why I say, please put aside Prikata national politics and what happened post-Sheraton. But he is someone who brought me into politics, right? So I'm really looking at history. Uh, put, push aside, ignore what yeah. happened post-Sheraton. Um, but it's very tough uh, for someone as senior as him to give an opportunity to someone as young as me, right? Similarly, how Tun M given give an opportunity to me. And when I met up with him the first time, he was very keen to read Malaysia of corruption and abuse of power. He was kicked out from AMNO then for challenging Najib and 1MDB. Uh, it's just tragic, uh, truly tragic uh, what happened during Sheraton. So that's where I departed. But one thing which we say in Adat Melayu or the Malay culture is jangan lupa budi. How do I convert it? Uh, never forget those who, who help you. However, still 
forever remain principled. So I will remain principled. I disagree with what happened after, but I'll never forget uh, for what happened before. And that's really nice, right? That's really nice that you can acknowledge the good uh, your political opponents have done while at the same time criticizing them because I think uh, it's a disaster once you start seeing people on the other side of the aisle as evil yeah. people. I think we should yeah. see them as political opponents but not enemies, right? Exactly. Right. We, we, need Why? To, we, we need to move away from the politics of vendetta, vengeance, because right. if not, it will be cyclical. This leader right. comes in, this leader goes after that, and it never stops, you know. So that's why if we reform our democratic institutions that becomes independent, then it's no longer Sadiq, no longer Tan Sri Mudin, no longer this person taking action. It's really the rule of law. And we want the rule of law to stand supreme in Malaysia. Right. YB, thank you so much. This was fascinating. One of my favorite episodes so far. And I thank really you. wish you all the best. And I'm sure our paths will cross in the future. Definitely. <laughs> thank you. If you ever come down to Malaysia, especially in Moa, please do tell me. Okay, yeah. I will. I'll take you up on that offer when the border opens. Thank you so yeah. much. And thank you, thank everybody, you. for tuning in. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.